Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with the China Project. Subscribe to Access from the China Project to get access access to not only our great daily newsletter, the Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. If you've been listening to this show for a reasonably long time, odds are that you've heard me and probably heard some of my guests on the program lament the lack of attention given in Western media outlets to what might be called mainstream intellectuals in China. Not surprisingly, the fact that they don't garner much coverage means that knowledge of and familiarity with them and their ideas, their convictions, their attitudes is very much lacking in the reading public in the West. If you are a regular reader of news about China, odds are you know quite a bit about official ideology and you have a pretty good exposure to the thought of dissident or critical intellectuals. But unless you go looking for it, you're unlikely to be presented with the thinking of those in between who are, I would assert, really the most important when it comes to getting a read on overall attitudes in China, at least among educated elites. I have often suggested that when it comes to China, as a friend of mine, once wittily observed, the central question on the minds of most Americans is something like, why don't you Chinese hate your government as much as I think you should? Getting a better read on the elusive mainstream intellectuals, I think, would take you far toward answering that question. But if you do go looking for that mainstream intellectual or the body of ideas embodied in the notional fellow that Jude Blanchett once called the David Brooks of China, uh, the good news is you don't have to go very far at all. One China scholar who I greatly admire, who's made the establishment intellectual, his stock and trade is Timothy Cheek at UBC. And some of you may have heard him on the show talking about Wang Huning some months back. But if you want to go to the source, if you want to dive into a huge trove of English translations of the writings of our then head on over to readingthechinadream.com, where for the last five years, David Ownby, a professor of history at the University of Montreal, has been showcasing the works of a whole range of these establishment intellectuals, from liberals to new Confucians to the heavily statist new left. I am delighted that he is my guest today on Seneca, all the more so because he has just returned from a three-week trip to China during which he had many, many conversations with the very sort of Chinese intellectuals he studies and translates, and he has much to report on where their heads are these days. David Unby, a long overdue welcome to Seneca. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I am delighted to have you. Before we talk about your trip and what you found, I do want to spend a bit of time talking about this labor of love of yours, reading The China Dream. Oh, sure. It's such a great resource. Uh, it's easy, I think, for me at least, to lose a whole afternoon just delving into <laughs> the debates that occupy the, the folks that you translate. Can you talk about the genesis of the project first? What drove you to want to create this website and to focus specifically on this group? This happened completely 
a random event, completely random event. I was at a conference in, in Vancouver with my buddy Timothy Cheek, maybe 12 years ago. I don't even remember what the conference was for. I think it was one of the end of the year things where you've got a budget and you have to spend it, otherwise you give the money back. <laughs> and uh, he had invited Xu Jilin, an historian from East China Normal University, with whom Tim has worked for years on, on him and with him. And as you do, he gave me a copy of his latest book. Uh, and then on the flight back from Vancouver to Montreal, which is five hours, I'm, I had nothing else to read, I guess. And I just pulled out his book and started reading it to pass the time, hoping to fall asleep. But it was it was a good book. It was and not a good book with Chinese characteristics. It was a, it was a good book that you felt like reading. I mean, we all know this feeling when you just happen upon something that says, "Read me, read me." Right. Whether it be a novel, it can be a history book. Uh, I think of Barbara Tuckman or Simon Shama, people who write these sort of nice narrative history books. And, and his book was that. And it occurred to me that I, was, I don't know how old I was, that I'm 50, 55. I had never happened upon a good Chinese book. The stuff I had read for my research was research stuff. It was always hard. I worked on secret societies and popular religion. And it may be that there aren't good books in those fields. I don't know. But for some reason, I just always thought that would be impossible for political reasons or it would be censored or it would have to follow a familiar narrative. But here, here it was right in front of me, a book I wanted to read. And I thought to myself, either I have happened to fall upon the only good Chinese book in existence, <laughs> which seemed to me logically unlikely, or I'm looking at something that there's a lot of and we're paying no attention to. And that latter idea slowly sunk in. It just sort of took root in my head that this was something really interesting that we knew very little about. So I finished up what I was working on at the time, which I don't remember what it was, and started doing this because when this happens to me, I can't stop. It just it felt important. It felt interesting. And I, I was starting to get obsessed, I guess, a little bit. So I worked with Jilin over the course of a few years to he picked a set of, or we picked together a set of essays, and I translated them. It became a book published 2018 on Cambridge, Rethinking China. Right. Uh, I've forgotten what the subtitle is. But the basic idea was a liberal was thinking about what China was losing with China's rise. And he was warning against the dangers of fascism and saying that China was doing some things that pre-war Germany and Japan had been doing. And that if you look at where that wound up, China might want to think twice about following that path. So this was a really fun thing to do. I don't know. I, mean, I just enjoy translation. Not everyone does. But for me, it was just delightful. Just really loves Tai Chi Jung, the kind of thing. So after that, I did his footnotes. This was a whole world. He was writing about the contemporary Chinese intellectual scene. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He has two faces. One face is a scholarly, where he, he does sort of the 20th century history of intellectuals from any number of perspectives. But then he also writes as a public intellectual, or whatever you want to call him in China, the, the public-facing intellectual, where he talks about things that are in the news or trends that he sees that are important. And we did those, not the scholarly ones. Scholarship in any country is is what it is, but it's really fun to read. But his stuff was fun to read. But that, that was a new world for me. I had not known that there was this vibrancy of ideas and diversity and debate and just interesting stuff. So I went through his footnotes, reading everyone and translating a lot. I find it hard to read Chinese. I really want to understand something that's in Chinese. I almost have to translate it. Right. So um, I went. that took two or three years to go through all that. 
But I think this was really good boot camp. I, I, I chose well. I could have chosen, I mean, it, it was by chance that I chose well. Uh, but he, he's a very good writer and a very open-minded kind of person. So if I had started with somebody who's doctrinaire, uh, it would have been a different world altogether. But starting with him and working out, I got a good sense of the lay of the land in China. And that's about when I decided this should be on a website somewhere because most translations wind up on secondary presses printed in small runs. So they wind up lost in a library somewhere and you, you really can't find them. I mean, there, there was right. that series of translations that Emmy Sharp did for a long time, which were very good and available, but they, they cost a lot. It wasn't something that an individual could necessarily subscribe to. But a website gets around those problems and makes it available to everyone. And that's so that's what I just started doing, just put it on the website, not having any idea that it would attract <laughs> an audience or a membership. I mean, it's pretty obscure stuff. I mean, m my mother tries to read what I write, bless her soul. She's 87, but she just said, David, not no, sorry, I'm just not going to read this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not for everyone. Yeah, no, I, mean, I guess not. But I mean, it just seems easy to me because I've been doing it for so long, but it's true. It's a bit, uh, it can be a bit off-putting at the be at the beginning. So that's how, that's how it worked. You have a mission statement though on the website where you do talk about explicitly why you think that it's important for this particular batch of intellectuals to be read. Yeah. Why, you know, they aren't the critical or dissident. Well, they're critical often, but they're not dissidents and nor are they doctrinaire official intellectuals. Why this group? Yeah, it's sort of like you said in, in the intro, that these people are there with the regime. Sometimes they dislike aspects of it. Sometimes they like what the regime does. But they're in there trying to convince other intellectuals of, and the government sometimes, of various points of view. The dissidents that we like to translate and read and admire, I mean, one, two things happen to a dissident once they're labeled as such in China. First, they they're imprisoned or exiled, and second, they're translated. But th they have no more influence in China. I remember in 2015, I was in China with a bunch of people we were working with, and this woman who was, I guess, 45 years old turned to me and said, who's this Ai Weiwei people keep talking about? <laughs> right. She, 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 she didn't know. I think she was unusual in her obtuseness, but, but still. Or deliberately obtuse. Deliberately obtuse in the way that scholars can be, I don't know. But anyway, yeah. I think she was telling the truth that she'd never heard of Ai Weiwei. So these guys are in there fighting, developing skills and vocabulary that work in context. So to me, like it's the David Brooks of China or David Frum or whoever you want to pick. Sure, sure. I mean, they're not as independent and they're not generally working for newspapers, but it's the same sort of thing, the, the, the mainstream, the, the people who, who don't leave, the people who say, well... If it were up to me, I'd have a different sort of government, but here we are. What am I going to do? I've got my kids to think about. Let's try to shape this in such a way that it will be better. I think many of them see themselves as potential content providers for the regime. Some of them have told me this directly, you know, that they're writing with Xi Jinping in mind. Uh, right. I mean, the China dream, as he announced it, was pretty empty. They, 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 there's no real content except China greatness. I mean, it's just MAGA in China. Right. But for them, China's rise has been an electrifying thing. I mean, China can be an optimistic, positive place for the first time since the century of humiliation. And this gave them a chance to rethink pretty much everything about China and the world, past, present, and future. 
So a lot of them thought long and hard about what China should look like. And a lot of them are pitching these ideas in various forms to one another and to the government in the hope that the dream takes one form or another. So that, that's why they're important. For sure. Uh, you've said this a lot better than I did in the intro, but uh, excellent. There are, however, people who would push back on the claim that these people who are, after all, mainly college professors, albeit, you know, they're college professors who are gongzhi, you know, public intellectuals yeah. with big Weibo or Weixin followings. They push back on this idea that they are in any sense key to understanding China, its politics, its direction. Uh, they might read a few posts on your website to conclude that these guys are just rarefied elites talking about a lot of you know highfalutin theory and that something so merely academic has really nothing at all to teach us about what China really is today about the you know the attitudes of ordinary Chinese their mentality you know better to read a good Pete Hessler book or even one of his excellent New Yorker essays where you know he talks about real people uh, how would you respond to that I'd respond to that by saying that these intellectuals are real people too mm -hmm. the stuff I translate is usually not very theoretical or pointy-headed. And the best of them are trying to reach an audience that goes beyond their 15 best friends. And I think for, for some of them do wind up, I mean, they're background noise. They're, they're one background noise and society's made up of collections of background noises, you know? Right. So they're important when they're important. But I was talking to Xu Jilin when I was in Shanghai this time, and he mentioned writing a piece in June 2022, I guess, just after the uh, when the lockdowns were over in Shanghai and somebody interviewed him and he just did it off the cuff and it was read 20 million times. It was downloaded 20 million times. Wow. So, and, and then they took it down because they said, yeah, <laughs> yes, you're very moderate, but we don't want that many people reading you. <laughs> Cause it, it yeah. was, there was nothing at all radical in it. I managed to find it and translate it. So it's, it's not available in China, but you can read it on my website if you want to. Excellent. So with the caveat that there's a lot of variation within each of the major categories into which you divide you know, China's establishment thinkers, a lot of thinkers who defy this kind of categorization too, um, would you give an overview of the kind of common ideological denominators for each of the three main categories of thinkers in, in your taxonomy? Um, and maybe give us some representative individuals with quick sketches of one or two who you'd put into each of the three buckets of the new Confucians, the uh, liberals, and the new left? Okay, that's a big question. That was what my third year course was this year <laughs> in my <laughs> university. Uh, th so the, the basic categories or divisions go back to the 1990s sure. when uh, there were the liberals who dominated in terms of numbers, but they were very divided in terms of the way they looked at the world. So liberals at that time, and still today, I guess, to some degree, would include free market people, uh, people who like uh, Edmund Burke. Uh, really, they wouldn't be liberals at all in, in our context. And on the other end, end of that, there would be Bernie Sanders type liberals, and, and they, they, they were all together as liberals in the 1990s, I would say. Then there were there was a new left, which at the outset was this mixture of sort of postmodern, post-structural stuff drawn from the West. A lot of them studied in the West, and China has translated massive amounts of stuff. So even if you don't go, you can keep up. Yeah. So there was that overlaying just a, a genuine, I think, commitment that they needed to fight neoliberalism. I mean, the 90s were when the government in China basically destroyed 
what the socialist order had been and replaced it with a, a market economy with a speed that is astounding. And vast numbers of people lost their jobs, and there was a lot of suffering as they went through that. I mean, Yao Yang says in one of his pieces, you, you may be worried about us now, but if we got through the 1990s, we can get through anything. So <laughs> the, the, the New Left was fighting against that and in a way that I think people fought against new liberal ideas elsewhere in the world. And they, they were committed to keeping socialism alive. If ever they tire in their daily struggles, they just think about Francis Fukuyama and the end of history, and that riles them up again. And they go out and tr look through the uh, treasure house of socialist ideas from China and elsewhere and come back with another proposition. So that's what they were at the outset. And then there were the new Confucians who were trying to... They were, in, in a large way, responding to Huntington. When Huntington talked about mm -hmm. Civilization. the civilizations, they, they said, oh my God, we don't have one. You know, China <laughs> destroyed its civilization over the course of the 20th century. And they were saying, if we have to fight this battle, we need some, we need some ammunition. So that was what they were doing, going back to the Confucian tradition, looking for agency. And I mean, some of them, I think, were working to find a cover for uh, benign authoritarianism. But it was, it was a genuine cultural crisis that pushed them to try to revive all that stuff. So the 90s were a time of great debate. Uh, as things moved forward, China's rise, getting in the 2000s, I think that's when they sort of realized I mean, I was in China a lot in the 1980s and 90s, and all I remember is a construction site. I mean, it just looked right. like a bulldozer had gone through, and they were trying to put it back together. So no one could tell China was rising. I think it took many years, and it was uh, Ganyang said somewhere he read about it first in Time magazine and looked around and said, huh, they're right. <laughs> we have done something here. So that, that changed things up in many ways. Uh, for instance... As the state grew stronger and more prosperous and dealt with some of the worst of the neoliberal excesses, the new left moved from being this warrior for the good cause to being quite statist uh, and dropping a lot of its, its emphasis on social issues. Right. Uh, the liberals, who had been the dominant group in the 1980s and 1990s in terms of numbers, in terms of, I think, volume, just volume in, in the society. There were a lot of them saying a lot of things. Yeah. They lost a lot of traction as China's rise made China look good because they, they were basically wanting some kind of democratic market-based order. And once China succeeded, that sort of pulled the rug out from under them. So they didn't, and they still don't know quite what to do. We can talk about that further if you want to. I mean, there are a lot of Trump supporters among Chinese, yeah, li yeah. Chinese liberals now. And that, that's Sun Liping and stuff, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Gaochuan Xi is, is a big one, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, so that happened. So the, the, the new left moved toward the state. The liberals sort of lost their voice. New Confucians made a big play to get Xi's ear in the early part of his mandate. Uh, and there was a lot of writing about that, but he, he didn't fall for it. So they're still out there pitching saying pretty much the same thing, but I feel like their moment, for the moment, their moment has passed, I think. Mm -hmm. For uh, typical representative figures in each of those schools,
well, Sui Zhuyuan and, and, and Wang Hui for the new left. They're probably the archetypes. Yeah. Uh, now Zhang Shigong does a lot of talking for the new left. Okay. He, he's one of the best statist figures. I talked about him. I gave a course at the Collège de France in Paris last year and devoted an entire hour to Zhang Shigong. And Jean-Philippe Beja, who studies dissidents, just yelled at me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I had wasted my time, and why was I talking about this terrible person? It's true, I don't like his ideas at all. It's, it, it gets quite close to fascism sometimes. But he's well, we don't need to like people to think that they're important to understand. Right? Well, that that that's that's my point. That if we don't if we don't reflect what's out there, we're presenting a false image of what China is. So I've, I've translated a lot of him. Yeah, Wang Hui or Tsuijian, both of them represent the 1990s version of the of the new lab very very well because they're heavily influenced by stuff from the west uh yeah and at the same time they're they're dedicated socialists trying to revive something they're very interesting thinkers wang Wei certainly at the outset is well worth reading i haven't translated a lot of him because people have already translated a lot of him he's sort of the darling of the of the left in the U.S., which is a weird marriage in some ways, because Wang himself has become quite statist, which is not exactly where you want to be if you're a leftist in the States, but um, no. a typical figure in the liberal camp What I think be Xu Jilin, who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wrote all those very powerful essays sort of attacking the new Confucians and the new left in the 2000s, but has since moved away from this because it's kind of dangerous to do that now and uh, uh, as he said to me this time in Shanghai and he said it in the past too I really like living here but I really don't want to go to prison so I think he, he's <laughs> sort of I don't know I haven't followed his scholarship all that carefully but his public voice has moved away from these kind of issues and toward issues that are less troublesome like he writes a lot about youth generations in a way that's really interesting. I mean, he's not making this up. These are things that really interest him. But he's moved away again from the liberal, near-dissident posture that he might have had in the 1990s and 2000 towards something a little bit more marginal, say. So it's not pointed. It's not pointed as as it would have been in the past. For the the New Confucians, my favorite is Chun Ming, Mm-hmm. who's um, a younger guy with more sense of humor than Zhang Qing. Zhang Qing, who is the best known, I think, of the new Confucians, right. is somewhat scary to read, I think. He imagines entirely new Confucian orders where China's government is redone in a Confucian sense. It's it's utopian or dystopian one, depending on what you think of it. <laughs> Chun Ming is, is, he started out as a liberal, as most people, Chinese did, and there's a good piece that I translated an interview with him that he did in Taiwan, where he describes the evolution of his thoughts uh, from a very liberal stance in the 1980s, because he was in in university at that time, and it was the cultural thing. It was the fall of the Soviet Union and Huntington and all that that made him think, oh my God, we need to go back, hit the books again and get our culture back. And he aggressively pursued Xi Jinping at the beginning of his mandate. I translated another thing of his, where he addresses him as Xi Dada in the text, Uncle Xi, uh-huh. which other intellectuals just think is, what are you doing? That's just not done to be that craven. But, I mean, <laughs> the title of the thing is uh, 
something like the Confucian version of the China dream and it's just right out there. I know him personally. He's a really good guy and fun to be with. And I, I said, you know, reading this, it looked to me like you're hoping Xi Jinping's going to buy this and put it in practice. And he looked at me like I had seen through some kind of mystery or something. <laughs> how, did, how did you know that? That's, that's exactly what I was doing, he said. That's a, a longish answer to a longish question. I think maybe you have other things to follow up on there. Yeah, I do. Uh, and one is that it's it strikes me, it's really remarkable how each of these schools seems to have emerged as a direct response to something in the West. I mean, you talk about the Neo-Confucians having emerged as a response to Huntington and his, you know, Clash of Civilizations idea. You talk about the New Left as having, you know, responding to Francis Fukuyama and, and to, you know, to, well, neoliberalism that had overtaken China. And so, too, with the liberals, there's sort of, you know, a response to, well, I mean, these days, the, with their kind of lamentable embrace, at least among many of them, of, of Trumpism, seems to be a kind of response to the West, too. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that strikes me. Yeah, the West is central in ways that I hadn't realized until I started doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody, I forgot who it was, a professor at Stanford, I think, who's not in the field, but... He thought, oh, I'm going to read all Oinby's translations and find out, you know, what's the core of how, of the Chinese view of the world. And he went through them all and said, well, there's not much China in there. They're all talking, their language is largely taken from the West. Right. Uh, I mean, right. there, there are the odd Zhao Tingyangs and others who attempt to bring back Confucian language and concepts. But the explanatory logic used in Chinese intellectual circles is still largely drawn from the West. So it's, yeah, exactly. They are responding to the West. They, they know so yeah. much more about us than we know about them. It's just amazing and a little bit frightening, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have my own theories, David, as to why the establishment intellectuals, these people that you write about, are so often ignored. Um, and I think it overlaps a lot with your own explanations, which, you know, I, you lay out in, in that mission statement on reading the ChinaDream.com, which I recommend everybody read. But can you spell some of those out for, for, for us, for the listening audience? And could you share your ideas of how you think our failure to focus on them has kind of blinkered our understanding of intellectual life in China? Yeah, the basic problem is the heritage of the Cold War, which has taught us that in communist regimes or authoritarian regimes, no one can say anything, which I suppose perhaps was largely true with the Soviet Union. And was certainly and more and more true these days. And more and more true <laughs> these days. And then certainly was true under under Mao, I think. Although some recent research showed that there was more agency than I would have thought. Mm. But anyway, that that's pretty much it. So from the get-go, we think that there's no way they can say anything interesting. The second thing is they write in Chinese, which is understandable, of course, but off-putting for the people who do not write in Chinese. So all of our efforts to understand China are directed first at the official government statements that come out with great rapidity, and there's enough there for the Bill Bishops of this world to stay occupied for many more hours than he would like to, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and then... If there's extra energy available, we look at dissidents. I mean, if Tsai Sha shows up, uh, this exiled former professor at the party school, yeah. party school in Beijing, uh, so she winds up in in the U.S. exiled here. Of course, we're going to listen to her and put her in foreign policy, and I'm sure someone's working on the translation of her her stuff. And, and 
more power to them. It's not that we should ignore these people, but the danger of this approach is that we get nothing, no vision of what Chinese mainstream life is like. I mean, anyone who spent any time in China knows that there is a mainstream life. There's TV, there's radio, there's podcasts. You know, people are not afraid in their homes, sitting in their homes waiting for the world to come to an end or... I mean, they're irritated with the government sometimes in the way we are, and sometimes more than we are. But there is what I've called this background noise of the intellectuals talking about things in ways that are meaningful. To me, if you read the people I translate, the feeling I get is that we could easily have a discussion with these people, that, that common concerns are easily identifiable and this would, this, I mean, China and the U.S. desperately need to talk to one another. So mm -hmm. although I didn't start out with this in mind when I was doing the project, by now I feel like if I can push it anywhere, I would like to push it in that direction to, to, to humanize China, to make, uh, make Americans and French and other people realize that if we could somehow push our governments to the side or get them out of the room, we'd have no trouble at all discussing many, many things. Uh, most Chinese liberals, for instance, and this is many, maybe not most, I don't know, but a lot of them are sort of Rockefeller Republicans. Right. You know, I mean, we, when we think of Chinese intellectuals, we, we think they're all hardcore socialists, which is a kind of a natural assumption to make given what the regime is and sure. and the basic education everyone has about China. But these guys are, are not like that at all. I translated a lot of stuff that they wrote about Black Lives Matter, and th these were written by friends of mine whom I admire and have spent a lot of time with. And I was <laughs> amazed to find that they were really quite against it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because it destroys the possibility of, con of consensus. Um, their, their fix on this is that any kind of identity politics or politics of victimization uh, just means getting more and more selfish and fragmented and divided. And they prefer these guys like Huntington too, the Huntington notion of Anglo-Saxon consensus. It's a, it's a very strange thing to read an entire text praising 19th century Anglo-Saxon values in the United States. Maybe but not entirely are. surprising coming from a country where, you know, 92% of the people are Han. But Could be. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there is that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's lamentable. But so you've just advocated for more sort of intellectual to intellectual contact. And about four weeks ago, you got on an airplane and you went to China, and you did just that. So let's shift gears and talk right. about that trip. Uh, before we get into your overall takeaways from your multiple conversations, maybe we can just start with your itinerary. How long had it been since you were last in China? Uh, where where did you go this time, and what ac academic institutions did you liaise with, uh, and so forth? Uh, the last time I was there was in December uh, 2018, mm. and I was there just briefly uh, I can't remember why I was there, but it was Beijing. Tim Cheek was there too, I believe. And we just ran around and saw people. We must have had grant money left over. And then, <laughs> and then, I, then I went yeah, again. And then I went to Taiwan to see Chen Yongxiang, who runs the review Sixiang, mm -hmm. which is this brilliant thing that almost nobody knows about. Sixiang just means thought. Yeah. And he has been doing in Chinese what I have done with my website. I mean, he just he just follows Sinophone discourse everywhere and where people speak Chinese. So it does the mainland, does Taiwan, does Southeast Asia. 
and he does it really, really well. I mean, someone should just translate everything he's done, put it out there. But anyway, I went to see him. I was going to go to China. I had a leave, a sabbatical leave in 2022, 23. I was going to go to China and, and of course didn't because no one could. No, right. 2020, whenever the, the pandemic hit, 20. Yeah, 20. There we go, 2020. Uh, so this is the it's first time how Time is so blurred now. It's, it's ridiculous. It's yeah. ridiculous. I, I could sort of blame jet lag, but I'm always like this. Um, this time I still had a tourist visa, so I didn't have to liaise with anybody, any academic institutions. I could have done it. Mm. I had just translated a book by Yao Yang, who's head of the business school at Beida, and he was in the process of writing so he did write the letter and I was about to apply for a visa, but China changed their mind about having to redo old visas in March when I was doing all this. So I could just go on the 10 year visa I had issued, I think in 2016. So that was good because sometimes China scholars have a hard time getting in, as we know. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Tim Cheek has problems now and uh, I don't know why they haven't looked in my direction. Uh, but I, I had no problem at all. I just went through the border. No one, no one checked. I did not use academic institutions. I just talked to my friends and friends of their friends. Uh, it was very easy. I had access. I think everyone I wrote to wrote back responding positively, even people I'd never mm. met before. I was I was prepared for much more reluctance or you know sorry we're very busy it's just bufang bien it's not not you know it's not not yeah not appropriate right now but no one did that so I met huh. everyone I wanted to so that was great I had to go through Hong Kong because I couldn't find direct flights to the mainland right it was meant to be Montreal Toronto Zurich Hong Kong which is obviously not your idea of a garden party. No. Uh, but the first flight was late, so I missed my connection to Zurich. So it wound up being Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, with a twelve-hour layover, and then Hong Kong. So it was pretty wow. pretty awful getting there. Christ. Uh, yeah, and the way back was Hong Kong, Frankfurt, Montreal, which was yeah. In the old days, there were direct flights from Montreal That's right. to. To, to Shanghai Beijing or Beijing, or either one. Yeah, right. And they went over the North Pole, so they were they were no longer. They can't go through Russian airspace anymore, right? Yeah, but was, so that was great, that these were like 30-hour marathons, or the one coming back was, I think, 40 hours getting door-to-door. So it's, that was pretty awful. But in China, it was fine. I had a week in Beijing and a week in Shanghai, just hanging out and talking to whoever I could find, whoever wanted to talk to me. So... It was easy and a good trip from that perspective, but the things they had to say were kind of somber, shall we say. It was not a yeah. It's not a happy time in China. The only happy people I met were rich people, but rich. People. <laughs> we'll talk about them later. But uh, let's talk about these somber folks yeah. you met. Um, you know how uniform was this kind of malaise that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it uh, the second or third day I was in Beijing, I went out to meet with. A couple of people with whom I'd had arm's length contacts before. I, mean, I, mm. I published a book that was vaguely related to something that they did. So we knew one another, enough of a pretext to go see them. And they're 30-something journalists, publishers, and an independent kind of setup. And pretty much as soon as I got there, they, they 
found a, a room in their place and shut the door and then just emptied their hearts or souls to me for about an hour and a half mm. in ways that I, I wasn't expecting this at all. And what they were talking about was the way in which the end of COVID had upset their lives and their very souls in ways that they couldn't get over. And this is now five or six months later, right? And uh, they were both angry, just uh, visibly furious. One of them said to me, you like to think your government cares a little bit about you, you know, but no. And she said, I, I have to rethink everything I thought I knew. I have to think what my parents went through, what my grandparents went through. What, is this all just been a joke? This, uh, you know. What, so it wasn't the lockdowns, but it was actually the, the Voltfoss? It was the the terrible ending, that sort of horror movie ending where they said, all right, you want freedom, we'll give you freedom. And, and they just right. turned off all the controls, didn't bother to vaccinate people, didn't bother to stock up the drugstores. And just declared right. victory, right? They just said, oh, Omicron's a, a minor cold. You'll get over it. And if grandpa dies, well, he was old anyway. So, I mean, and it was done in such a way. From the outside, it was obviously incompetent and cynical. We all saw that. But I had not realized the extent to which it was lived as an existential crisis within China. So one of them was mad. The other one was just lost. It just kept talking about nothing in my upbringing nothing in my education prepares me to think about this I, I don't know what to do and i he said i now understand what tong ping uh, lying flat really means you know that <laughs> me and people like me do not want to be part of this system i don't want a government job i don't want to work in some company i don't i don't want to become those people i'm going to just get out of here so and it was just it was really something it was one of the most intense conversations i've had any time in my life and these were people i i didn't know at all let me make sure I understand this. So this is sort of a loss of confidence in, in the kind of exalted competence of, of this technocratic leadership that was, you know, delivering the goods. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah th I think that that's what it is. It's just that, I mean, we focus in our media on Xi Jinping and everything he does wrong, but in China, it's that's just baked in, you know, they've lived with authoritar authoritarianism forever. So right. some like it, some don't, but it's not their daily fare. I mean, I know some intellectuals for whom it is, but for, for most folks, you, you're born there, you grew up there, you just deal with it, right? And, yeah, and China's, what's water? Exactly. Yeah. And China's performance in general has been quite good. Uh, China looks good. The subways run. The restaurants are open. Things function, you know? And yeah, it was just the manifest cynicism and incompetence of the ending of all that. So the first year was rough, but okay, because... China was doing great things and fighting the virus in such a way that it kind of worked. And you could see China as leading the world for the first year of the fight against the pandemic. Second year was more of the first, but with a little bit less confidence and success. And people were getting tired of it because it was very heavy handed. And the third year was just awful because the third year, the rest of the world was Omicron and getting over it. And China was the, the lockdowns, lockdowns and yeah. constant testing and just, you know, you couldn't live your life anymore. And right. then when, and, and and with that came, of course, the constant propaganda that we're doing the right thing, that we care about the people, that if we do something else, everyone will die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they just did that. They just, on a dime, reversed the policy. Everyone got sick and a lot of people died. Yeah. And uh, yeah, those two people just said to me, it's, I, don't, I don't know what to think about my life anymore. I, I just really feel off kilter 
And I, yeah. I, it sounded like they were mourning. One of them was mourning something. That's what occurred to me later, mourning some sort of confidence or he'd lost an exalted leader somewhere. And they, these are journalists, mm. so they're, they're not. I mean, they're cynical people. You can't be a journalist without being cynical. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they read the news. They, 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 they yeah, know what's yeah, going yeah. on in the rest of the world. So they weren't naive. But something about that ending in December yeah. just marked their soul in a, in, a, in a way. And the next day I was having lunch with a, a professor I had never met. And I had been really struck by those conversations, by just the, the manifest pain they revealed. It's very, very, I can't remember ever doing that to a stranger, revealing an intense pain that I was suffering. But anyway, I thought maybe they're just weird, you know, maybe that's just their thing. So I asked this guy whom I'd never met, I said, you know, I met with people yesterday and they said what I just told you. And then also they can't talk about it because China succeeded. You know, if you talk about how bad you feel, someone will tell on you and you'll get in trouble for not being with the program. Uh, so it's like millions of Chinese are sort of living post-traumatic stress disorder. They're just walking mm -hmm. time bombs. And this guy whom I never met before said, yep, that's pretty much it. Wow. <laughs> Everyone in this room at some level is living that. And they, they all said, you know, our, our, you see it at work. People are just they, 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 they don't function anymore. They're, they're angry. They get in one of those faces. Uh, it's just really like, you know, like the guys who came back from Iraq or something, you know, that, that's yeah. with this. And I said, you know, I walk around the streets and I go on trains and everyone's normal. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything looks normal, but we're all trying to deal with this in one way or another. It was confirmed over and over again with other people I talked to. Yeah. When I've talked to people who've shared similar sentiments and, and I have, what they've often said is that, you know, if it weren't for the hubris, if it weren't for just all the, the sort of shameless braggadocio about how well we were doing compared to the rest of the world, it wouldn't have felt so bad. But that that's what really, really sort of, you know, put the nail in for a lot of yeah, them. Yeah, like, just, like, what do you yeah. take us for, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They didn't talk about that, but I'm sure they could have. They just didn't go in that direction. Hmm. Uh, no one mentioned His Royal Highness in this context. <laughs> they just talked about the state in general, how it didn't take care of them and, in fact, abused them. Yeah. So, so has the end of this, you know, the zero COVID strategy, that that abrupt, you know, dropping of all the measures, uh, has that affected the public's trust? Do you think in other key national strategies? I mean, is there a ripple effect on perspectives toward, you know, technological autonomy or or common prosperity or what have you? Uh, you know, I think people have just basically clocked out. They're just not paying that, that much mm. attention. I was I was struck over and over again, and it disturbed me greatly that no one's reading anymore. Mm. Uh, lots of intellectuals just said, ah, it's all nonsense, I don't want to read it. And of course, my project is based on the, the idea that people write and read for, for, <laughs> to, to, make, to have some influence. And uh, they just read in their WeChat groups. Then, I mean, in, sort of in the way that we do here on Facebook or whatever. Uh, I was, I'm a modest person, so I wouldn't say this normally, but I, I was better read than most of these intellectuals. They just, you know, even books written by someone else in their direct field, they hadn't read them. So I just think they're they're kind of worn out. And yeah, well, and who can blame? Not who can blame? Yeah. Them. And one one guy. I met a 70-year-old, kind of a Bernie Sanders socialist type, 
just burned out and said, I, I didn't even want to subscribe to the journals anymore, but my wife made me because she, she thinks they look good on the coffee table. You know? just, just to be clear, this isn't just the, the liberals either. This is, this is all three of your, your, your main categories and you know, the, the miscellaneous others as well. This is pretty uniform, except for, as you say, the rich people. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see any new Confucians this time, okay. I don't think. Uh, although the guy that I confirmed the story about PTSD was kind of a new Confucian. Uh, but we didn't go there in our conversation. Probably most of the people I talked to were liberals of one stripe or another. I did hang out. I had one evening with China's new left, some of the celebrities. Oh, it, the it was, boozy dinner. Yeah, it was a kind of a boozy dinner. And uh, there was some talk of Mao, but there was more talk of wine, how to grow it, where to buy it, <laughs> where the best bargains are. I, I was kind of stunned. It was not an intellectually vibrant evening at all. And, and we talked about taxes, you know, in, in the way that, in the way that rich people do. Shenzhen <laughs> uh, is offering 15% taxes uh, to anyone who wants to move there. And apparently a large part of Beijing's intellectual elite is considering making the move. <laughs> to yeah, I think with the top tax rate in, in 45%. Beijing is over, yeah, it's over 40%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they figure, hey, I'll just hang up my shingle down there and send my kid to college easier, right? So Yeah. So that that's what we talked about with the new left that night. <laughs> yeah, if, if, it, if it had only been cigars, I would have been back in my country club atmosphere in rural Tennessee where I grew up, but we didn't have the cigars, so. Oh. How funny, how funny. So so how has this shift in perception affected the intellectual community's relationship with, with the government and, and with each other? Are there do you think there were new kind of alliances forming, are existing ones breaking down? Uh, I mean, it's clear to me, just from, from talking to people, that there's less willingness, there's way more trepidation in, in actually talking about the government uh, about you know Xi Jinping himself, obviously, about you know the political leadership in general. Is there is there a sense like that this moment might mark a a, a turning point of some a turning point? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people talked about turning points, but they all said it's too early to tell. And also, they can't talk about this turning point. It's too dangerous and it's too painful. Someone would have to articulate it in some way, or the government would have to make other fumbles that went in the same direction, it seems to me. The Most of them, as I said, they're just trying to do something else. Um, my liberal buddies in Shanghai, who are about my age, so 60 and more, they, the ones with any kind of uh, motivation and talent, get out of the university setting and talk to entrepreneurs and make money. Hmm. Uh, this right. is, the university environment is not very inviting. That's where most of the authority over them is exercised. Right. And they just get out and talk to somebody else. I mean, that's what the good ones do. They're always finding entrepreneurs who will invite them to give a talk about something. And they find talking with the entrepreneurs interesting too. Uh, they find the entrepreneurs extremely intelligent, which makes a lot of sense, of course, because they've been out in the real world fighting their battles all these years and they know some stuff. I, I might mention in passing that one of my buddies who does this a lot said that none of the entrepreneurs have any sympathy for America anymore. 
that they're. I was going to ask about that about, yeah. about attitudes toward the United States. That, that, what was your sense with about that? Yeah, that, I mean, he told me that. I mean, America was well viewed until a few years ago uh, through popular culture, through people of people exchange. The general atmosphere in China fifteen or twenty years ago toward or attitude toward the states would have been largely positive. It is no longer the case at all. Uh, they blame these entrepreneurs anyway, blame the states for any bad thing that happens in China. And it's hard to get mad at them for that. I mean, the way the Biden administration talks about China is uh, utterly one-sided and very imperious from a Chinese point of view. Sure. So what, what, what they say to him is, look, they need to give us some way out. I mean, I'm sure Swanza said something about this in The Art of War about not not cor- boxing him not in. boxing in your opponent in a corner but that's what they feel like the states are doing and it's hard to argue with them on that that does seem to be exactly what the u.s wants to do and th- this is i think a fairly big change uh, over the last few years you know this is the entrepreneurs you're talking about yeah. what about the intellectuals themselves and their attitudes toward the u.s intellectuals i don't know if they would tell me i mean i am an american i don't know if they'd say outright that kind of thing. But again, a lot of them have moved toward Trump and this kind of make America great again. Uh, it's There's this book they published in Taiwan last year. It's called American Order, put together by a bunch of well-known Chinese intellectuals. I mean, that's not these are not hacks, including Gao Chuanxi, who's a constitutional yeah. scholar at uh, in, in, in Shanghai. And a very conservative liberal. He's one of those Burkeans who thinks that the world was best in mid 19th century England when the government was small and markets were big and, and no one protected labor or, or anything like that. But I think he kind of disgruntled or disappointed now with Trump, but that book is just amazing. It's just, yeah, it's complete Trumpism. If you're interested in that topic, we did a, a Seneca podcast with Ian Johnson yeah. and with, uh, Lin Yao, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, Lin Yao about, wrote, you know, great pieces yeah. about that kind of stuff. You know, that's right about you know about beaconism and and whatnot. So, so that kind of liberal thinks it's it's a disaster for the world if the United States falls apart. Mm. So they're angry, but they're not angry because we're being uh, imperialists. They're angry because we're, we don't get our house in order and and right. rule the world through a good example. Yeah, you'd think that dissatisfaction with Beijing would translate into maybe more positive attitude toward Washington, but it sounds like they're they're kind of where I am, where you know, both my my parents are fighting and they're both assholes. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I think that's pretty much it. There were some positive people. There's a young historian scholar named Shijian. He was born in '77, I think. Yeah, '77. Yeah, he's the person. By the way, he you translated most recently. Just a quick potted bio. He's the author. Of this kind of controversial work of history called the Hub, yeah, three thousand years of China. It's Shu Niu, Sun Qian Nian, Zhongguo. Right, that sold a liberal, right, he's right. a liberal of sorts. Yeah, that sold four hundred fifty thousand copies. Which yeah, huge, huge sell. Uh, yeah. Which, as you said to me, that gave me enough money to be above some of the problems that a lot of my my colleagues face. So he he now has a position in Shanghai while he lives in Beijing, and he said, well. I can always be elsewhere when I want to. <laughs> but anyway, mm-hmm. he had all sorts of really interesting intellectual projects that he's working on. So he is not clocked out at all. He's still very much plugged in. Uh, and he's a huge media presence too. Uh, China, China yeah. is such a media place now. 
everybody and anybody has their channel on Billy Billy and everything else, and they spend a lot of time with this. So he, he was positive and believed that he he already has in mind um, a, a, a saga, a saga of Chinese identity from day one through now that he's going to write in 10 years. I mean, he's already kind of got outlined. And, I mean, this is someone with a lot of chutzpah, shall we say. So I'm going to follow him because I, I think it's important to follow someone who is positive. The other people who were positive, this is an interesting kind of thing. I spent an afternoon with the editorial board of the Beijing Cultural Review, Wenhua Tsonghong, mm-hmm. which is a major journal in China. Uh, I've translated a lot of their stuff and they wanted to know who I was because they want, wondered why I was translating all their stuff. <laughs> and they couldn't figure out what my motive was. And I, I told them it was world peace. And I, I said, Millie said, I'm doing for world peace. And I said it kind of laughingly, but it's true at the same time. But that comforted them, the notion that I was doing it for the cause of American Chinese, better American Chinese understanding or Chinese world understanding. They are... Incredibly statist, however. I mean, I, I right. can't imagine a journalist uh, anywhere else in the world being quite that enthusiastic about what their state was doing. I mean, most journalists are thoroughly cynical people trained to look for the worst in everything. And that's not what they were doing at all. Uh, they are... Cheerleaders. They're, they're, yeah. Well, they're really smart cheerleaders, though. I, I didn't get a... I mean, they were very gung-ho pro-China throughout the entire interview and could not quite understand. They were missionaries about it. They, they kind of, mm-hmm. since I translated all that stuff, they wanted to know why I didn't want to get fully on board and we would do all these projects together. And I said, well, once once, <laughs> once I do that, people will not read me because I won't be seen as independent anymore. And they said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But they are positive and I, they, they still are doing, they do quite good work. At various times in this odyssey, I've been tempted to just read and translate them. Because they seem to have their hand on the finger on the pulse of China in the sense that they identify really important issues. And they either commission, or I don't know quite how they do their work, but they find really good people who write things that are not cheerleading. Their self-appointed role seems to be that of addressing the problems of the day in a pragmatic, hopeful, and yet critical way. For instance... I'm, I have translated and I'll finish it up for tomorrow or the next day whenever I update the, the website again. One of their pieces, they, they recycled it, but it was on youth issues. So they know that Chinese young people are walking around as walking time bombs sure. and they're trying to do something about it. And the piece is a fairly good, well, it's a very good analysis of what the problem is. And there's no cheerleading in it at all. And it's from last year. When all this was kind of yeah, youth unemployment had touched like twenty three percent unemployment yeah. and just general dissatisfaction with things. The fact that young people are, on the one hand, very patriotic, but also deeply concerned about their individual futures and uh, not plugged into family with no sense of meaning beyond a sort of empty patriotism. It's not bad at all, really. For I look forward to reading it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they're positive. <laughs> And they are moving forward, doing their kind of thing. So they're, they're worth reading, as are the other journals that are like those, like uh, Kaifang Shaddai. And there are, there are four or five really good journals like that that are worth reading, although they are all statist in various ways. 
it was it was an interesting afternoon. Yeah, so it sounds like you had a pretty mixed experience. Although I think your overall takeaway is still that there was a, a kind of pervasive uh, shell shock. Yeah. Was kind of you know yeah. But you know, uh, also with the possible exception of Beijing cab drivers, we know that nobody grumbles more than Beijing intellectuals. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, so we have to take some of this with a grain of salt. And still, though, this to me does seem to represent a pretty significant shift. Are you ready to draw any firm or firm-ish conclusions based on your time in Beijing and Shanghai? I mean, was your sense that this negative negativity, you know, this is is a a passing thing, or do you think that there's lasting damage to their Confidence in the capabilities of the leadership. I think the older generation. I mean, they were already said. One of one of them said to me when I asked about this uh, walking time bomb stuff. He said, "Yeah, I mean, we had our June Fourth, right? I mean, we, we've been there. We, this has happened to us already. We lost our faith a long time ago. So yeah. they, they'll just soldier on in in the way that yeah. they're doing, uh, making money by talking to entrepreneurs, uh, writing what the market wants to see. The younger folks, I think that." There could be a real crisis brewing. Yeah. Uh, there's this mix of disenchantment, uh, utter cynicism, mourning, lack of jobs, uh, these kind of explosive workplaces where people are not functioning well, and then no outlet at all to deal with this. No, no way to talk about it. No way to to to, to vent. Sounds to me like a good mixture to create some excellent rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, there may be a new wave of, uh, you know, punk screaming in China that will develop out of this. It's entirely possible. Yeah. 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 But David, this isn't your first radio, uh, not mine either. We've seen, you know, what seemed at the time like major moments of disillusionment in the leadership. I mean, 89 maybe was exceptional, but, you know, there was the Wenchuan earthquake. There's the, you know, the Wenzhou high-speed rail collision. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. The banning of Under the Dome. It's like, what was that, 2013 or something? The apartment fire in Daxi. Right. Uh, the, the death of Li Wenliang. Um, so, you know, where does this zero COVID volt fast fall in the sort of rankings of the league tables of leadership failures? Well, I think the thing is, it hit pretty much everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in a way that uh, a train crash does not. I mean, you, you mourn that when you see it on the news, uh, but that's an individual incident in in one place. But I think everybody, I don't know what the rural areas, but anybody in a big city lived this pretty much the same way. And they all lived through the ballyhooing that you talked about as well. And, and Chinese are not stupid, and they're plugged into what goes on in the rest of China and the rest of the world. Still, like you say, the, the weight of history of path dependency is, is pretty strong, and people have an immense capacity to forget things. I mean, that's why people have more than one child. <laughs> you, <laughs> you forget how bad it hurt the first time. So, I mean, if I, have, if I were a betting person, I would bet that this would just go away over the course of the next two or three years to mm. show up in somebody's excellent novel, excellent but obscure novel, five to ten years down the road. But they were really upset. I mean, it, it, it just yeah. upset me for a long time. Uh, the, the, the conversation I talked about with those two youngish people was really quite something. Yeah, yeah. It really set the tone, too, because it's like that happened like your second day in, in, in country, huh? Yeah, and it was followed by the, I think it was that same evening I had, no, with the, with the uh, wine, new left crowd. I can't remember exactly what the what the schedule was, but I think maybe the day after. So that was quite the interesting <laughs> contrast, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
I would love to have been a fly on the wall at any of these conversations. But, uh, you know, for, for the last thing that I want to ask you about, though, is is sort of this biggish idea of mine. Um, for maybe the last year or so, this idea has been gestating in me. Uh, I'll try to give you the simple version and uh, assume that you have read your Joseph Levinson. I I have always bought his assertion that the question that's been at the heart of modern Chinese intellectual history goes something like, how do we create national wealth and power? And and his you know his his assertion also that that any satisfactory answer has to pass the tests of being both true, that is, you know, does it actually deliver the goods? Does it create wealth and power? And just as importantly, of also being mine, that is something that feels Chinese, is consonant with what Chinese intellectuals believe to be their own inheritance, whether that's cultural or intellectual or what have you. I've begun to think that now a critical mass of the Chinese intelligentsia believes maybe without even having realized it or really thought much about it, that this has actually been achieved, that the question's been answered, that, you know, China, we realized it was rising. Now they sort of feel it's risen. China's obviously not going to be pushed around so easily anymore. It's not going to be, you know, have to have to retreat in every instance where it, it faces the armed power of the West. The answer seems to be, you know, delivered in this weird syncretic amalgam of technocratic Confucian Leninist market driven <laughs> socialism with with Chinese characteristics, of course. I mean it's totally clumsy, it's totally hard to name neatly. But, you know, arguably it's delivered the goods. It does feel Chinese. And so I keep asking myself, okay, if we assume that the old question is answered, the wealth and power question, or will be answered soon, then what is the new question? Is there a new question? I have my idea of what that might be, but I'm curious to know what you think the new question might be, or if you think this is a bunch of hooey in the first place. No, I don't think it's a bunch of hooey. Uh, I wonder what like China's leading entrepreneurs think. I don't know if some of them probably write books that I don't read. I think that kind of self-assurance might be found there, you know, in, in their writings or maybe the writings of military generals if they do such things. For my intellectuals, I think they feel something. They, they feel the success, but when they start to write it, they have a really hard time. Because mm. the, their conceptual baggage, the vocabulary they use, still is deeply, deeply Western and reflects their training and their thinking over these years. So whenever they reach toward Chineseness or questions of agency, the language gets really slippery. What I think might happen is the younger generation, they just won't talk about that. Like, like you say, they've, they've, they've made it. that It's not a big deal. Um Xu Jilin has written stuff like, yeah, we, we've got wealth and power now, but we've become just like the other guys. I mean, we we, we right. lost our soul, right? And I think of people like Xiang Biao, with whom I've worked a lot. Uh, the guy who was at Oxford, he's now at Max Planck. He's a social anthropologist. I translated a book of his. Such an interesting, such an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, I don't think he worries about that. You know, once you've made your name out somewhere else, you don't necessarily worry as much about Chineseness. You just you just be Chinese. Mm. And his his questions, and I hope to work with him in the future. Uh, I'm about to retire and move to Switzerland, actually. So, um, oh, congrats! Uh, and I might work with him. I'm, I'm an associate at his institute. He, he's working on common concerns, meaning how to bring the world together, how to bring people together in meaningful ways that 
fly under political borders and stuff like that. So he seems not to be concerned at all about Chineseness. And he's born in '74, hmm. I think. So he's a youngish type. When the people from the you know the 1990s generation start writing, I don't know what they think. I mean, this is a, by all accounts, these young people are just a different breed altogether. Uh, having grown up on the internet without brothers and sisters. Um, so we'll just have to see, but th that's my prediction. It's just that they'll get enough self assurance that the question will sort of go away. Resolve itself. But the next yeah. big question, I mean, the next big question should be how this China lives in the world. Exactly. That, I mean, that's what it needs to be. And the best thinkers say that, uh, I mean, I like Jilin. He says, look, we're all modern now. There are different kinds of modernity. There's, there's, there's Chinese or Confucian modernity. There's Islamic modernity. There's, there's all, these, these all coexist. And in China, he says, we need to stop worrying about our uniqueness and instead put our cards on the table. Say, look, look, guys, you're doing X thing in Y context, and this is not working. China has Z idea that might solve this. And this makes sense to me, that in, instead of trying to... <laughs> to uh, identify and protect some sense of uniqueness, just be who you are in the world and exercise influence without worrying about it. Right. But the fact that he needs to say that, the need, yeah. that he needs to enjoin people to not obsess on, on Chineseness suggests to me, you know, it's that old saw. Sure. It's like, you know, if, if they're saying, don't spit, that means people are <laughs> spitting, right? So... Don't obsess on Chinese Chineseness means people are obsessing on Chineseness, and I think that. So I completely agree with you that it's, you know, how can China, how should China, how ought China be in the world now? That is the new question. How does it, you know, operate in a a world of of near peers or, yeah, or peers? Yeah, yeah. And 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 the the problem I think with that, the way that the reason why that is not an easy question to answer is. It's because, you know, this is a civilization that just spills over the little Westphalian nation-state cup that it's been poured into. And it, it, it you know, it, there's goop hanging out the <laughs> sides of the cup. And and that's where, you know, the pain points are. That's where, you know, when you put it in the cupboard with the other cups, yeah. it pushes up against the, the, those things. And so, you know, it's it's that uh, inability to, to confine Chineseness just to, you know, it's not, it's not congruent, right? Uh, yeah. It's deeply felt, I think, in, in a way that I've never felt my Americanness. I mean, I just don't. I, yeah. I, I never had the century of humiliation, right? So I, I right, never had right. to think about that. But I think for for all of them, it's still it is deeply felt in a way that is sometimes hard for the rest of the world to understand. Yeah, yeah, that's really the first step in you know exercising that cognitive empathy. Is you that if you don't get that, if you don't get why that that is deeply felt, then you're kind of kind of lost, already, right? Yeah, missed the first button. Yeah, David Ownby, thank you so much for your generosity with your time, and even bigger thanks for you know doing what you do. My pleasure with the readingthechinadream.com website. It's just such a great resource. I uh, cannot recommend it more highly. Uh, speaking of recommending highly, let us move on to recommendations. But first, a very quick reminder that if you like the work that we're doing with the Seneca Podcast and with other shows in the network, or with things like you know our YouTube. The Signal with Lizzie Lee, which if you're not watching that, that's just amazing. Lizzie is such a great colleague and such a brilliant interviewer. Uh, please support our work 
by becoming an access access subscriber to the China Project. You'll get our, our newsletter, the Daily Dispatch. You'll unlock the paywall, read all the great stuff on our website, and uh, do your part. Become a subscriber. Thank you. On to recommendations. David, what do you have for us? One book I read in the last little while really jumped out at me. It's a novel by Dominica Starnone, S-T-A-R-N-O-N-E, called uh, Ties. It was written in Italian. I found this because I was reading Jumpa Lahiri, the author. Yeah, yeah, Jumpa Lahiri. Who's yeah. strange, uh, that she grew up in the States. Uh, I think she's from, she's from some part of India. So she immigrant mm-hmm. but grew up in the States and then wrote in English and then, then fell in love with Italian and moved to Italy and wrote in Italian. Wow. And then translated her own work back into English and wrote a book about doing that. So that, that book is called Translating Myself. And I, I had read her stuff, her stories, I always liked her. And then I read this, and she talked about translating Starnone, the book Ties. So this is where I ran across it. So I thought, oh, that, that'd be fun. So I just got it on Kindle. And it's just, everyone listening to this, stop doing what you're doing. Go to the Kindle store, buy this, clear an afternoon, and read it. It's just the most fantastic thing I have ever the, the the story is it starts with an affair, family, husband, wife, two kids. The guy has an affair, leaves the family. So the first part of the book is the letters that she writes, the the abandoned wife writes to him, trying to harangue him into coming home, and it's done with just such grace and wit and such such anger. It's just amazing. The second part of the book, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that couple gets back together. And it's, this is like 50 years later. Mm-hmm. They're an old couple and goes through what they're like now after they got over the, the, the affair. And the third part of the book is just the kids who are now grown up. And it's just astonishing. Uh, the writing is out of this world. I, I don't read Italian, but I like this so much that I read the same book in English, Portuguese, Spanish, and French. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, in in the way that you're you're a musician, you like probably listening to covers of the same song done by different artists. I do, yeah. So that that's yeah. what that was like, just doing paragraph by paragraph through the through the work. Uh, wow! So that is, I'm I'm buying it right now. I mean, I'm I'm on Amazon right now. Well, seriously, to clear your afternoon. I don't think I. I will. I I, I read it without breathing almost. It was just that good. And he has two more other things as well. But she's translated another book of his yeah. called Trick. Yeah, that's good, it but it's not like as good. good in my view. I think a third okay, one as okay. well called Trust, maybe. No, she's a fantastic writer. Um, and you know that's what you need to be to be a good translator. This is what I've always thought. I mean, my favorite translator from the Italian was always William Weaver. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he did all the Italo Calvino books and the Umberto Eco books. And I just, I, he's just, I, you, you just know the, the man himself is just a, a, a fantastically talented writer. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's what, what makes for it. Uh, what a great recommendation. That's one of those ones I'm instantly going to go for because I really like her writing. She's, She's, she's so oh, good. you'll love this. The oh, I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Um, my recommendation is is sort of a weird one. I went down a, a strange rabbit hole after I had read this John Le Carre uh, novel that I recommended just actually last week on the show with Dra- James Crabtree. Uh, it's called A Perfect Spy. You may recall. Mm-hmm. There's a book that the protagonist, whose name is Magnus Pym, mm-hmm. uh, carries around with him. I won't spoil why, but um, 
It's called Simplicissimus. Yeah. It's a 17th century German novel. Yeah. Yeah. By, by von Grimmelhausen. Uh, and it takes place during the 30 years war. I got to thinking out. Oh, my daughter is like sort of a history nerd and she loves to just after we finished dinner, she'll put some massive question to me and, and just sort of to test me. How nice. The first time she did this was, was uh, like she was like in junior high and made me sort of, you know, offer my explanation for the outbreak of the first world war uh but she's gonna at some point ask me explain the 30 years war to me dad and um i would be so hard put to offer anything more than your most basic you know well it was the protestants and the calvinists right right you're ahead of me i don't know about oh, that. i know about that but uh, gustavus adolphus <laughs> right it's <laughs> It ends with it ends ties up really neatly in a bow with the Treaty of Westphalia and everybody is a, a nation state and blah blah blah. Uh, something about the defenestration of Prague, but mm-hmm. Habsburgs and their bid for power. Anyway, I uh, decided to bone up, and so I guess maybe five years ago or so, I had I had read this very old sort of stodgy old school history book uh, by by this guy named Wedgwood. It's sort of the classic one on the Thirty Years War. But then I thought. You know, I'm sure there's a, a more up-to-date, good, sort of modern historical Surely, take yeah. on it that involves all of new scholarship. And and sure enough, I found one, and it's great. It's it's by Peter H. Wilson. It's called The Thirty Years' War, not a very imaginative title. Um, I'm maybe a fourth of the way through it, and, you know, it's a slog. It's it's difficult, and I have had to go back and reread many, many paragraphs. Uh, but, uh, okay, with the caveat that I'm not ready quite for my daughter to ask me about it, I will change the subject if asked. <laughs> but um, I'm I'm way better prepared already than I would have otherwise been. So Great. that's my recommendation for this week. And uh, I may put that aside, though, to, to read um, Ties. It will leap out at you more than 30 Years' War, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so just the, the, the first, the first sentence will just make you sit down if you're not sitting down. It's just... Stunning. Yeah. Well, David, thanks once again. What a what a wonderful conversation. And it's 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 great to hear, you know, the sort of take from the ground uh from somebody especially whose whose work I so admire and, and whose sort of mission in life aligns so very much with my own. So thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. The Seneca Podcast is powered by the China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Proj, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.